Happy Sabbath. Oh, welcome everyone who is not from here. It's good to see you guys. Um, how was everyone's Christmas? Good. I, my Christmas was also very, very good. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, if you did not see me here last weekend, it's because I was on vacation and it was awesome. Um, I had a great Christmas. I went on vacation. Um, I spent the last week in Portland uh, with friends who are like family to me, uh, pretty much for the sole purpose of hanging out with this person. This is my nephew. His name is Miles. He's three years old. Um, he loves Lightning McQueen from the Cars movies, and he loves eating, and he loves hanging out with me. Uh, the most repeated question I heard this past week was, uh, he calls me Komo, which is like Korean for your aunt on your father's side. His most repeated question to me was, Komo, can you play with me? Like, okay, again. Um, and after spending so many of my waking hours with Miles, it actually really helped me to reflect on Jesus as a baby. Right, because if you like hang out with a baby, you think about babies a lot. And um, I was thinking about Jesus, the baby, not the Jesus I normally read about, um, not the Jesus I normally speak about, um, but the little baby Jesus whose arrival on earth we try to remember during the Advent season. Have you ever thought about what kind of baby Jesus must have been? Let's pray before we get into the message. Holy Spirit, this is your time now to do whatever you want to do. So um, will you hide me in the shadow of your cross? And <sighs> Father, speak through me. Um, this is your message. Uh, may we respond accordingly. May we listen. May we hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What kind of baby would Jesus have been? These are some thoughts that I had this past week. I think Jesus would have been a happy baby, like Miles. Um, I think he would have laughed and smiled really easily. I think he would have had very little, like, stranger anxiety. I think he would have been the baby that gets passed around all the time at church or at a temple, who gets, passed around, who, get, who gets passed around at potluck, because everyone wants to hold him. Everyone wants to play with him, like Ellie. <laughs> um... I would think that Jesus might have also been a good eater like Miles. I've never seen a toddler or an adult. Um, I've never seen a human ever shove fistfuls of sweet potato in their mouth before. And when I started laughing at how enthusiastically he was eating, he said to me, Hey, I'm hungry. I was like, oh, okay. Um, you guys are going to be seeing lots of pictures of Miles today. This is him being very happy to eat. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so happy he gets when he's eating. I feel like Jesus would have been a good eater as a baby. I think Jesus might have also been a good sleeper, a great sleeper like Miles. Um, Miles' parents, Pastor Chris, from Portland and his wife, Tracy, they would regularly tell me, especially when Miles was like very high energy, they would say, 
It's the best when he sleeps. <laughs> like, he looks the most precious when he sleeps. And I was like, oh, like, oh, that's nice. But, you know, I, I just kind of, oh, okay. One night, we're all hanging out downstairs. Miles had been put to bed already. And um, I just mentioned in passing, I was like, he had been sleeping for like an hour. And I was like, oh, I kind of miss him. Like, the house is like so quiet without him. And then Pastor Chris goes, hey, you want to go look at him when he's sleeping? <laughs> and I was like, what? And then his wife's like, you want to go? It's so cute. And so the three of us, we go upstairs, we like use our phones as flashlights, and then we just watched him sleeping. He's so cute. Very creepy, but so cute. And I think baby Jesus would have also been incredibly loving the way Miles is. He's super affectionate. It was a very regular thing that every meal that we ate together, he would say to me, Como? I need to tell you something. I'm like, oh, you have to tell me. And then he would whisper into my ear, I love you with all my heart. (gasps) Okay. (gasps) Um, But, but, okay, you know, I'm like talking about all these great things about Miles and baby Jesus. But there were also very, very clear signs of why Miles is not the Messiah, right? And he's very different from baby Jesus too. Miles gets very hangry. Um, Miles can be very um, bossy. He can be really naughty when he's in a bad mood, um, if he's tired or if he's hungry. And he also knows, as a three-year-old, he also knows how to manipulate people. Whenever he does something he's not supposed to do, like throwing things, he's not supposed to throw things, and you ask him, Miles, why did you throw that? His go-to response is always, because... I love you. <laughs> wow. Where did he learn that? Uh, which made me think about baby Jesus in even more wonder. Was he never fussy? Was baby Jesus never a bossy toddler? Did he never get hangry? Did he not throw tantrums when he didn't get his way or when he missed a nap? Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, it says, In the record of his birth, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. It's the title of my sermon today. And when I first learned this word as a theology major in undergrad, I loved the meaning of it so much that um, this is like really extreme and like this is not like a recommendation to anyone, but I love the meaning of this word so much that I actually wanted to get a tattoo of it (laughs) because I was like, wow, I want a regular reminder of the character of God's love, right? How much he loved us that Jesus would come down to be with us. That love would come and live with us. Like, I thought this word was like, this is exactly who God is. They say that when you want to get a tattoo. So if any of you are like, oh, I kind of want to get a tattoo. Okay, they say if you want to get a tattoo, you should think about what you want, where you want it for one year. Okay, minimum. You should think about it for one year. And then one year later, if you still want that tattoo, then maybe you can make that commitment. 
So I did this, right? I thought about it for a year. And a year later, I still wanted it. Okay? And so, I'm just kidding. Um, But I decided to give myself a little more time to think about it, like, a little bit longer because I have, like, commitment issues. So I gave myself one more year. And one year later, I was so glad I did not get that tattoo, right? I was like, oh, man, that would be, like, Wow, no, I'm really glad I didn't do that. But the significance and the impact of this word still hits heavy with me today. Emmanuel, God with us. God incarnate. When I was an undergrad, I spent one quarter of my junior year in South Korea teaching English at the SDA Language Institute. And while I was there, there was a restaurant my friends and I would often frequent. Um, It was called... Can anyone read this? <laughs> okay, it says, it says, it's called Carne Station. Okay, Carne Station. It was a all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue place. I mean, I guess since we were actually in Korea, it was just a barbecue place, right? They're, they're all Korean barbecue there. So Carne Station, a station of meat, a station of flesh. The concept of the incarnation is what makes Christianity so different from other religions. C.S. Lewis writes, the son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. The Latin verb incarnare, it means to make flesh. So when we say that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, we're acknowledging that The Son of God, the creator of the universe, took on a fleshly, bodily form, as 1 John 1.14 tells us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Scripture became flesh. It became carne and lived amongst us. And this is one of my favorite verses of scripture, top three for sure. All these religious people were going around quoting the Old Testament, but missing the context and the true character of God. And God's like, wait, but that's not why, wait, that's not why I told you to do that. Wait, that's, wait, no, 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 wait, hold on guys. I'm not just like this money collector that's sitting around trying to collect good deeds from you and then marking you off for all your bad deeds. Wait, no, no, no. There's more important things than just following the rituals. Wait, are you kind? Are you loving? (sighs) They keep getting it wrong. They keep misunderstanding my character. But good thing Jesus is the embodiment of my word. Good thing Jesus, you know, if, if scripture, if scripture had a body, a heart, a personality, wait, it does, it's, Literally Jesus, and he is now going to move into your neighborhood. And this was insanity to the Jews because John was saying that the loving creator God is among us. He's here. To us, it would be like, Jesus moved to Loma Linda, right? Emmanuel. Eugene Peterson, in his message translation of the Bible, he writes, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. This is incarnation, the personal love of God made physical, made tangible. And the biblical definition of love, it shows us that love moves the other in, like moves towards the other in action. So Jesus is God's love made manifest. So Jesus is God's love who moved in next door. This is the biblical model of love, that God had taken on flesh and moved in next door. But what the Holy Spirit taught me this week, and what I found so crazy, is that incarnation didn't end with Jesus being born as a baby. To be honest, I thought for most of my Christian life that it ended there. Like, oh, like, it's really awesome, the greatest gift to humanity. It's crazy that God would send his son as a little baby. But that's like kind of where my thought process ended, right? That's awesome, Christmas, like the gift of Jesus. But that's not where it ends. And this is why it's so cool. Incarnation, it didn't end with Jesus being born in flesh and blood. Incarnation is meant to continue with you and me. After the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, when he says, you are the light of the world, who is the you? Is you. It's you. It's me. And he says later that how we impact others, how we love others, this is going to be how everyone will know. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. He ties his witness and his authenticity into how well we love those around us. But what does that look like to love people the way Jesus loves us? I think it's helpful always to always look at what love is not, what we sometimes confuse love for. First of all, love is not a feeling. Um, For so many of us, our love has been reduced to an emotion, a feeling. Author and professor Dr. Jerry Brashears, he says that our modern view of love is unidimensional, right? It has one dimension. And that one dimension that we look at is feeling. So we can't see ourselves loving someone that we don't like because we've attached love to emotion. This is a conversation I actually find myself having pretty regularly. Um, The struggle that people face when they know that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, they are called to love the people around them. But sometimes the people around them are really annoying or they're really difficult or they're really hurtful or they're really petty and they're really hard to love, or they're really, really hard to like. And so the struggle that people face when they're trying to be loving, they're like, wait, PJ, I know I'm supposed to love them, but like, aren't I supposed to be real? Like, shouldn't I be authentic? I don't want to be fake to them. I have to love that person, but I don't even like that person. 
We've attached love to an emotion. When Jesus says to love our enemies, that's a hard command for us. But is he saying, hey, be best friends with your enemy? Is he telling you to befriend the person who hurt you, who betrayed you, who caused you pain? And maybe you're like, well, I don't have an enemy. Maybe you don't have an enemy, but maybe you have someone who has caused you hurt. Maybe there is someone who, yeah, you don't actively hate them, but you would just rather never see them ever again. You would much, you would really prefer if they just didn't exist, right? You don't want them to die, like, oh, that's, that's too much. But if they did not exist, that'd be fine. And Jesus is asking us to show the action of love through service and forgiveness to our enemies, even those we may not label as an enemy. Another thing love is not. Love is not tolerance. Love is not, hey, do whatever you want to do to each his own. In our society, many of us seem to believe that to disagree means to hate. If you disagree with me, you must hate me. That's not true. If you disagree with someone, do you know what that means? It means you disagree with them. Okay? That's all it means. Jesus was able to be morally exacting and also deeply compassionate towards people at the same time. I'm sure you guys have heard the quote, the opposite of love is not hate, it's what? Indifference. Okay? But have you heard the whole context of this quote? This is written by um, Elie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor. And he wrote, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. He continues on to say, the opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. You see, tolerance is actually a form of indifference. It can be a type of apathy. It can be a form of, I don't care what you do, to each his own. God is not tolerant with us. I don't know if you knew this, but God is not tolerant with us. If God was tolerant with us, he would have never exposed himself to the harsh reality of becoming a baby, of being hunted by Herod, of joining a community that would ultimately mock and reject and hate him of ultimately being killed on the cross to show us the love of a father. If God tolerated us, he could have just ignored us. You and I do not have a tolerant God. We don't have a God that's indifferent. We have a God who is loving. And for that to be true, God must act. And he did. And he continues to act. And the Bible shows us the history of love moving towards humanity. Because love is Christ moving into our world, taking on flesh, showing us what love is like. And here is the beginning of our practical application for today. Our church's mission is what? To follow Jesus and love like Jesus. So here's one way to start practicing this kind of love to start listening. You cannot love someone until you start listening to them. You cannot love someone until you start walking in their shoes. As I mentioned, my nephew's name is Miles. And the reason his name is Miles is because his dad was reading scripture and he read Matthew chapter 5 verse 41. And that reads, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And as his wife was pregnant, he was thinking, 
I really want my son to become a kind of person who would travel extra miles with another person, to become a person of compassion and generosity. Miles, right? To walk miles with others, to become a person like Jesus. And we cannot love someone until we start asking ourselves, what is life like for them? How do I enter into their world? This year, um, we're planning to, or sorry, next year in 2020, we're planning to do um, a free health clinic for the people who live in San Bernardino. Um, What is life like for them? What is it like to not have the access that so many of us in this room have to all the health care needs that we need? In 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, Um, Schools, restrooms, parks, drinking fountains, and buses were all racially segregated by law. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. arrived in the city to lead a peaceful, nonviolent demonstration against racial injustice in the city. However, the city's sheriff had gotten a court injunction that made the march illegal. So Martin Luther King Jr., he knew the cost of marching, but he does it anyway, and he's imprisoned. He's taken to jail. On Tuesday, April 16th, he's given a copy of the Birmingham News, and it contains a letter addressed to him from eight pastors and a rabbi. Okay, so Martin Luther King Jr., he's been imprisoned for this peaceful protest, and now someone gives to him a copy of this letter written to him by eight pastors and a rabbi. And in this letter, what their, their argument is, you should have been more patient. Okay, this is their advice to him. You should have been more patient. And his response is now a very famous part of American literature, and it's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And if you haven't read it before, I really encourage you guys to take time to read it sometime. I'm just going to share a very short excerpt. This is his response to these members of clergy telling him, you should have been more patient. He says to them, perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million brothers smothered in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people, when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? And he continues on. He talks about other experiences. He ends this paragraph of African-American experiences. And then he says, when you experience these things, maybe then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. What was Martin Luther King Jr. trying to communicate to those who told him to be more patient? He was asking them, will you identify with me? 
Will you identify with us? Will you try walking in our shoes before trying to extend a solution? We cannot really feel loved until we are listened to. Paul writes in in Philippians chapter 5, verse 8, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What mindset is that? Paul breaks it down for us. He says, Christ identifying with us, Christ becoming a man, Christ putting on flesh and blood, walking in our sandals, singing our songs, feeling pain and rejection and hurt like every single human soul feels. Born in exile, born on the road, having to flee to Egypt after he was born, being crucified outside of the city gates, feeling in the depths of his soul and voicing his doubts and fears and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Emmanuel, God with us, this is love. When we identify with our neighbors, when we go, how is life through your eyes, through your experience? We are loving them the way Jesus chose to love us. And this isn't just for our neighbors or our enemies. This is for our friends, for our family members, the people we live with. He is the God who hears. He is the God who sits with us. And when listening happens, whether that is our Father hearing us or us hearing those around us, Emmanuel happens. God present among us. And church, you are the salt of the earth, and God desires to rub you into Loma Linda. He wants to rub you into your communities. You, but you have to show up. That's what incarnation is all about. If Jesus didn't show up, incarnation couldn't have happened. Some of my closest friends are atheists, and one of the most common questions they use to support their disbelief is, if God is real, why is there some sort of, some form of suffering happening in the world, right? If God is real, why are there children starving in Africa? Um, This is a quote from the book Kisses from Katie. This is the story of an 18-year-old from Nashville, Tennessee, who moved to Uganda to serve the orphan community. The truth is that 143 million orphan children and the 11 million who starve to death or die from preventable diseases and the 8.5 million who work as child slaves, prostitutes, or under other horrific conditions and the 2.3 million who live with HIV add up to 164.8 million needy children. And though at first glance, that looks like a a big number, 2.1 billion people on this earth proclaim to be Christians. The truth is that if only 8% of the Christians would care for one more child, there would not be any statistics left. Okay, isn't this crazy? If only 8% of people who profess to be followers of Jesus did something, cared for one more child, the world would look vastly different. We hear terrible things on the news, people in influential positions abusing their power. But what if everyone who served in law enforcement, what if they were Christians who really practiced loving like Jesus? What if all of our politicians, all of those in leadership in our government, what if they really practiced loving and serving like Jesus? What if the major CEOs of this country, our healthcare providers, 
those who are of influence, what if, what if they actively practiced loving others the way Jesus has first loved us? Jesus told us the game plan. He showed us the blueprints, and the, and He promised the Holy Spirit would be here to help us. We just need to engage. We just need to show up. Incarnation is Christ showing up in this world, in the flesh. And what's crazy to me is that He actually extends this invitation and this opportunity to us. He's like, "Hey, my character, my love, my peace, my warmth." I can show up in your flesh. I can be that in you, through you, if you will let me do that. Incarnation didn't end with a baby being born in a manger. Incarnation continues until Jesus returns again for us, with all of us making space and opportunity for Jesus to be revealed in us and through us. Loma Linda could become Carne Station. Right, incarnation station, and Jesus said, "As I have been sent into this world, so I send you." He sends us to disclose God, to show what God is like in this world. He sends you. He sends me. This is what it's meant. This is what is meant to be salt, to be light in this world. It's us showing up. It's us listening. It's us expressing not just empathy, not just feelings, but acting the way Jesus acted. You know, when we're young, we look at Christmas as being a time that's about us, right?、Um, on Christmas Eve, I asked Miles. I said, "Miles, did you get mommy and daddy something for Christmas?" And he goes, "What?" Presents are not for parents. <laughs> okay, three-year-old presents are not for parents, and his mom was like, "What?"、Um, that's the kind of attitude that children have, and that's understandable when we're young, right? It's a time when you know the child gets stuff. It's a time to receive. But if Miles became an adult and had a family of his own, and it's Christmas Eve. And he's like, "What? Presents aren't for kids; they're for me." Right? We would be concerned. When we are young in our faith, we look at the Advent season. We look at Christmas as a time that makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside because we make it about us. Oh man, Christmas—a time when we receive the love of God and the gift of Jesus as a baby. But as we grow and as we mature in our faith. Our perspectives must shift so that we can see the Advent season as a yearly catalyst for us to become vessels and vehicles for the Word to be flesh among our communities. Our perspectives must shift so that it's no longer about wow we received this amazing gift, but now it's how can we allow Jesus to be incarnate here? How can we experience Emmanuel here in our communities? Our perspectives must shift so that we can bring Jesus here and now, so that we can be salt and light. Will you accept that call? You know,、um, I'm sure you guys have heard that Jesus was not actually born on December 25th.、Uh, 
um, that uh, it was just a day that was chosen. And um, it's a few days after the winter solstice, which was a huge pagan holiday. Um, and Christians wanted to take back, you know, the season and kind of remember Jesus. And, you know, there's there, there's actually a lot of really fascinating information about why December 25th was the time that um, church leaders chose to celebrate and remember the birth of Christ. Um, the winter solstice uh, is usually December 21st or 22nd. The winter solstice marks the darkest day of the year, right? When the sunlight is the shortest. And it's during this time that we say that Jesus came here to earth because all around us still there is darkness. We're in darkness. All around us still, it's cold. People are cold. People are, they don't feel the warmth of God. And Christmas, it not just reminds us of, hey, Jesus came to be the hope, to be the light, to remind you that it's not over. It doesn't end in darkness. I, I am here for you and I'm coming back for you. But for us now, as we continue to follow Jesus into the year 2020, it is an opportunity for us to, to be salt, to be light in a time of darkness, in a time of cold. Will you accept the call? Will you allow Emmanuel to happen in your lives and in your community? Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, you sent your son to us. Um, and, you know, it's so easy for us to uh, be moved by that and just um, appreciate the, the warmth of that gift. Um, but it doesn't end there. You call us to engage. You call us to experience what it's like to have Jesus incarnate to reveal to those around us um, in flesh and blood the love of our Father. So will you help us? Will you teach us? Will you teach us how to listen? Will you teach us how to engage? Will you teach us how to show up? Will you teach us how to love like Jesus loves? This is our prayer in his name. Amen.